Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh Darox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. about body and soul and how we can connect the two together or how we can bring them together in a creative way. What do you mean when you say soul? Because that's one of those words like it's meant to symbolize something that we don't know very much about and is kind of esoteric and far out and stuff. And so I know you mean something really important, but I just want to be really clear. What do you mean when you say soul? Let's start with a very simple example of a balloon. It's a rubber that is manufactured, and you get them in the thousands in a small box. Mm-hmm. Rubber balloon is used to have air in it mm-hmm. in order to become a useful balloon. Mm-hmm. The rubber is the body, and the air that goes in that rubber is the soul. So you're basically saying like the life force. Because when someone dies, they basically have all the exact same molecules in them that they just did, at least the ones that we can measure or understand. But for some reason, there's some difference in it that makes it dead. The air in the balloon I call soul, okay. and the, the rubber I call body. Their connection is really the portal to life, because somehow they've got to connect together in order for life to begin. And we want to talk about how the two can fuse together in a way that there would not be a separation. As long as the air is in the balloon, the balloon has a form and exists as the life of a balloon. Mm -hmm. But the moment the air leaves the balloon is a rubber that we put it back in the box or bury it six feet under. How we bring them together is what we want to talk about, okay. which is really the energy of the universe, which is the existence. The union of the two together takes place as a form of love. Otherwise, although in it, the soul is always separate from the body, although attached to it, but is separate. Most of our discussions focus on the physical parts of it. They don't really focus on the deeper spiritual connection. In order to be more happy in our life, be more creative. But are they talking with the mind or with the heart? To the mind, it can be as a group. But to the heart, it's got to be individual because it deals with emotion. To give instruction to somebody to follow their heart doesn't really come into a motivational way of talking. It's more of a something that we can do with the mind, not with the heart, because mind can relate to it, but heart cannot. To create, we go through the channel of the heart. We cannot go through the channel of the mind. And to go through the channel of the heart without the use of the mind is not going to work either. That's why I'm saying the union of the two becomes very important. Aristotle has a statement. He says, educating the mind without educating the heart 
is no education at all. How do you educate the heart? Now we're talking about heart. Has heart replaced soul in your language, or does the heart stand in for the soul? Is the heart the intermediary between the air and the balloon? The heart is actually the soul having become individualized into a physical form. Mm. So it's kind of the gateway between the two. Hafiz has a beautiful story that explains it pretty well. After God creates the universe, he doesn't think that he has truly manifested himself. It's a different nature that God had. So he orders Archangel Gabriel to go to earth and bring the handful of dust. God, who spent six days in creating the whole universe, spends 40 days and night forming and shaping this handful of dust to be his own nature. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he makes it, and he calls it the heart, and puts the heart in the universe. When the universe sees the glow of something special, which is different from its own nature, becomes jealous and wants to destroy the heart. So God orders the angels to make a box to put the heart in it. That's when the body becomes created to have the heart placed in it. Interesting. When the body knows that has the creative power within it, wants to utilize it or use it for its own benefit. Hmm. So the mind thinks that this is a great power that is inside of me and I can rule the world with it. God recognizes that. He cuts the connection between the heart and the mind. So the body is not aware that God is in it. So it's going out looking for God. And Hafez says that's how religions begin to form finding that missing piece that is already inside of us. When I'm talking about the connection between the mind and the heart is really connection between the physical body and divinity. So when Aristotle is talking about teaching the heart, are you basically saying that that means creating a a bridge of awareness between that soul energy and the physical body, like repairing that connection that was cut? Question is, how do you educate the heart? You can educate the mind easily, but how can you educate somebody's heart? How do we connect with knowledge that we can easily put it into mind, but we cannot connect it with the heart? Mind says there's only six directions, and nothing is beyond that, up, down, and the four sides. Only six directions, and nothing is beyond that. And the heart says, there are infinite ways, and I've gone through them. Mm-hmm. So how can you bring these two together? The heart connects with mystery, connects with divinity. Heart does not connect with something which is visible. Heart has to accept that it is connected with the mystery. Educating the heart 
is to make heart recognize that nothing is fixed the way the mind sees it or knows about it or dreams of it or plans it. We separate our environment from ourselves. That separation is because we want to be able to make a connection with them. And making the connection with them is external. We are not making connection from within. We're connecting by taking it out. It's in physical reality. Even the connection with your beloved is not that much of the heart involvement as it is the mind involvement. And the union of the two is what we call love. So love has its own strength or weakness. There is a love that has nothing of the mind in it. It's all heart, like the love of mother for a child. But then there is love that, you know, I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you make me happy. I love you because you do this for me. The moment because comes into the picture, goes back into the mind. So the first thing that we need to be aware of is the recognition that heart has to accept that I'm dealing with mystery. So that part of the recognition, I think, is the first step. What's kind of coming up for me as you're speaking is you've got this physical infinity and you've got this spiritual infinity. And in the physical infinity, there's an endless number of numbers that you can count, endless number of designations, endless number of ideas and judgments and attachments and all of that literally endless, an endless amount of knowable things. And then in the spiritual infinity, you have essentialization, you have a lack of things, but you have an infinite unknowable, basically. A lot of the errors in the way that we've approached God and spirituality have to do with what you're saying, which is trying to mentalize and physicalize aspects of what God is in some way that could be completely contained when inherently the soul breath is unknowable infinitely. And so that mystery that you're talking about, I think is a really important piece of understanding God, certainly in whatever way God could be understood by something that's physically limited as we are, but also ourselves, because a lot of the creation myths have this mix of this story of this breath inside of dust and even what you just said, we've got this heart that God made inside of this box of the humanity. So there's this constant story, and I could tell several other versions of that, where we're a mix of both. We're God and we're not God. We're infinite spiritually and we're infinite physically. And the war between those two things causes so much separation, and the love of those two things seems to be the merger of, of those in a way that equally respects their differences, you know, and somehow draws upon both of them to create something neither of them seem to quite be separately. Actually, the struggle between the two that makes us angry, resentful, selfish, fearful, those emotions which are connected with the heart, when they begin to uh, war or struggle with the mind, they become negative. To connect with the mystery is not really difficult. You don't need to know how big the sun is or how far it is from us. Just feel the sunlight. I love that description. That's a very clear illustration, I think, to me of what you're saying. Because 
you could measure the sun. You could talk about what you know chemicals or elements it's made of. You could talk about how fast it's hurtling through space, and those would all be aspects of mind. You know, and then you could feel it on your face, and you could just enjoy it, and that would be aspect of heart. Yeah, like you're at a beach or you're on the roof or somewhere, get all naked and feel the touch of breeze on your body. Mm-hmm. You're not going to try to figure out which direction it came from or right. any of that. You just feel the touch of breeze mm-hmm. on your body. Taste the richness of the soul, that sensation. I think it was Helen Keller, you know, who mentioned the most beautiful things can't be seen or heard, you know, they can only be felt with the heart. And it's interesting to say most beautiful because that designation of most is really important in that because you can see beautiful things, you know, and you can understand beautiful things, but um, most means more than the others. And to me, as soon as you're saying most, you're talking about this spiritual infinite. You know, that just keeps on going forever because there can be beautiful things for sure in the in the physical limited aspect. And but as soon as you are talking about what's beyond those physical limitations, it's just it keeps on going without end. Even what you were just saying about I love is really fascinating that you're bringing that up to me right now because in the shower three days ago, that's exactly the same thing that came to me. I was thinking, we have this expression in English, what do you think of this thing? And we say, oh, I love it, or I love carrots, or I love this, or I love that. Well, I was just thinking, you know, like it's different to say I love something specifically, or just to cut the sentence short and say, I love. I want to kind of bring that statement back for me, just as a practice, just saying, oh, I love. Because then it can mean so many different things. It doesn't have to mean I love this because then I'm just limiting myself to one specific thing. And I think what a beautiful thing to keep telling yourself constantly. What do you think about this thing I love? What do you think about this thing I love? The more that we let go of having to find all the answers in very specific mental definition kind of ways. We leave more and more room for that mystery, which I think we just have to finally understand can't be understood, but it can be felt. And I think that's the key difference, you know, is that it's not as the church, I think sometimes has said about the mysteries, those things are not for us to know. That may be true. Maybe they're not for us to know, but they are for us to feel. They are for us to experience. They are for us to be moved by and touched by. And they are for us to be expressed, but just not in a way that necessarily fits into our mental limited forms, you know? But I think to come against that and say that means that they don't have any relation to us is a massive mistake because we are a part of the mystery. We are at least half mystery, if not more than that, you know, and to discount that whole part and to cordon it off and say, well, you're not allowed to go in that direction because we can't understand it. People who came up with those decisions were people who were trying to control everything. They wanted to be able to control it, you know, and measure it and define it and use it, as you say, to have power over other people. And... That's sacrilegious to mystery. It's an abuse of mystery. It's a very sad relationship with mystery. Knowledge, which is connected with the mind constantly, has to be 
given into the heart. See, mind has the power of conviction, can calculate and bring it into some kind of a format. First step that we can do as human being is to let our mind give into our heart. Mm -hmm. In order to get our mind given to our heart is to unlearn because the mind's power is learning. So as you unlearn, you reduce the power of your mind. And by reducing the power of your mind, you allow the heart to go more into mystery, travel more into emotion of things, find way beyond the six directions. One thing that we can do as human being by reducing that power that mind has over the body. And I think another way to express that, you know, there's these two ways we can interact with anything or anyone. We can, we can reference or we can experience. You know, and so when you're talking about mind power, I'm hearing reference, you know, it's like, I know that you're a person and you're a man and you have hair. Those are all reference, reference, reference. You know, you're saying words at me, but then there's this other part of me that experiences and that's the experience of what it feels like to be in your presence. The joy that I feel emanating from you, the sense of energy and warmth coming from you. Those are just as important, you know, if not more important, a piece of what a person is and I think this whole learning and unlearning thing, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive and it doesn't have to be forever. It's like breathing. You breathe in, you learn. You breathe out, you unlearn. So this dance between both, I think, is where it really gets powerful. And even what you're talking about is a union between the two. I think that union can exist as a merger that's not an obliteration of either, but is almost like this rhythmic switching between the two. Something my friend Jerry used to say that I really loved is he said, the heart never stops beating, but it also stops beating every single second. <laughs> you know, it beats and then it rests and beats and it rests. And it's been stopping and starting, you know, our entire lifetimes. But we say that it doesn't stop. That to me seems like a beautiful merger, that rhythmic movement between the two. But if the heart was either stuck on a beat or it was stuck on a rest, we would be in trouble. And still, the mind is got to give in before the union takes place. Absolutely. How do we get the mind to give in? Last Sunday, I went to watch the sunrise at Point Doom. It was like about 5.30 in the morning. And I was looking at the ocean, and I was thinking, well, this could be the heart. It's endless. It's mystery. I have no idea what is deep inside there and where it goes and how far it goes. I thought how many of us have this frozen ocean inside us. Wow. Sometimes this ocean is turbulent. Sometimes it even becomes angry and we cannot even handle it. Most importantly, is unpredictable. And sometimes it's still has no idea what is beneath it, what is inside of it. And many of us have that still heart that has no idea that the divine power is inside of it. Mm. And we go into our mind and try to have this little nothing decide for us what to do next. Very true.
How do we get the access to that ocean which has got that layer of thick ice on top of it? That ocean that is in constant turbulence, not recognizing its power, gets mad and frustrated. When the mind has capability to cope with the heart, not to tell the heart what to do or what not to do. Connection takes place. If the surface of the ocean is frozen, you could accept it. You cannot tell the heart, thou shalt not freeze. Through solitude, we can reach that level of acceptability. That's where the mind can come into friendship with the heart, to help the heart by taking the steps in that direction. We talked a few days ago together about friendship. And you know, that's a big topic that I'm really interested in right now and studying and wanting to understand on a deeper level. And we were speaking about how, you know, friendship inherently has to do with this exchange, this giving between two opposites or two differences at least. And how there really could be a friendship between the mind and the heart and that would be the most ideal. I've never quite thought of it like that. And as soon as you said that, it just really sparked something in me because I think a lot of us are at war with ourselves. There's that internal war and the mind is trying to conquer the heart or sometimes the heart is trying to obliterate the mind. I mean, you look at how a lot of people try to get to joy on this earth and what they're mostly doing is substances and practices of different kinds that literally obliterate the mind, like physically, chemically obliterate the mind. That is a way to get heart energy involved, I imagine, but it doesn't sound like friendship to me. And I think how beautiful to be able to get to this place where the most brilliant and subtle and stunning aspects of heart are given freely and beautifully, you know, to the strong and intelligent and capable aspects of mind. And the two hold hands and the two embrace in this way. I saw this picture recently of all of this bread that hadn't been turned into bread yet. It was just a bunch of ingredients on a table. And it's the exact same ingredients that are inside of bread, but it's not bread. And it doesn't become bread until all of those ingredients are not only touching, but are mixed thoroughly, and then go through this burning experience together. And it's almost like we have all the ingredients of being human in us, but very few of us, I think, are actually human in the way that we're called or destined to be human. That bow that you're talking about has to go in a certain environment Yes. in order to be ready yeah. to be eaten. <laughs> the oven. <laughs> Yeah. The environment that we can make our heart to connect with our mind is silence and solitude. Mm. That's the environment that we can create, which means turn off all your digital units and just be in order for our heart to start expanding. If I have my cell phone, my mind is not in silence. Sometimes when I'm painting external forces come and takes me out of my silence. Like a phone ring? Right, a phone ring. <laughs> and I cannot escape from it. Right. So I say to my mind, okay, we're friends. We're not going to fight with each other. Mm. 
help me mm. to use the phone, but not have it disturbing me. Love it. So what I do is I'm in the middle of painting and the phone rings. And the ring of the phone is telling me that you are not breathing properly. Take deep breath. So the first ring goes and I'm... And the next one, I'm exhaling. And the next one, I'm inhaling. And the next one, I'm exhaling. And I push the button say, please call me tomorrow. Now, my mind was a good friend of my heart because it began to help my heart to get more oxygen into it and develop a rhythm for me. I'm so glad we're exploring this because a while back, I had this realization that there's a way to not have an enemy anymore by obliterating an enemy. And then there's a way to not have an enemy anymore by making a friend out of that enemy. Both ways, you know, cause a cessation of the enemy. But one of the ways is infinitely more valuable than the other way. When we have these struggles with aspects of ourself or with external natures of other people or circumstances, I think a lot of times by default, we just believe that it's a war and we by instinct immediately strike back. We throw rocks back. And I think what Jesus was talking about with that whole idea of turn the other cheek is just break the cycle because you have people in situations, Palestine and Israel and a lot of other places like that in the world where these people are born into this generational war that's gone on for so long, people can hardly even remember exactly what it was, the reason why we're supposed to hate the other. And I think sometimes those kinds of situations can just be metaphoric for internal conflicts that we have. We're just taught to hate these disturbances. We're taught to hate the obstacles. We're taught to hate these darker versions and darker natures and currents in ourself. When, what if it was as simple as just asking them for help? I think that's quite a genius thing that you're talking about is just ask. What's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that they can just say no or continue the war anyways. But what if you asked and what if you got good at asking in such a way that that enemy not only stopped hurting you, but then started helping you? And that's probably why prayer becomes so valuable in making that connection. Prayer is really the function in here because words are energy and that energy can have an impact. So when our prayer deals with an intention, we're making a shift in that energy towards a certain direction that connects with our desire, with our inner feeling, with our heart. And prayers are specifically the energy of asking. Exactly. It's energy of making a connection. Mm-hmm. It's the energy of accepting that I can receive guidance from a mysterious way. In terms of just human bonding, it's actually more bonding to ask someone to do something for you than it is for you to give something to someone else. You would think that giving something or making something for somebody else would be the most bonding thing. But when you ask somebody else for help with something on like an animal, ancient animal primal level, it makes them feel like they're important and useful that and respected that they were asked for help on this specific thing. There's something powerful about asking your enemies for help or asking this thing you've been struggling with for help. And I think a practical version of that would be what you did with the phone. What if this thing that keeps annoying me and, and bothering me, what if it's actually my friend? 
you know, and can I ask it for help? And can I make peace with this beautiful thing and actually turn it into something incredible? First step to do it is the recognition that my enemy is in the mystery mm. is not where my enemy is. Yes, beautiful. And the mystery is where I have to make a connection with. <sighs> if I call it my enemy, then... It is my enemy. I've got to get my sword and my spear and everything and go fight my enemy. You just blew my mind because, of course, in the mystery, there can be no enemy. The enemy only exists in the mind world. The enemy only exists in judgment. Enemy is a designation. That's a stunning, stunning thing you just said. Solomon talks about God and says, the darkness and the light are both alike to thee because they're both mystery. The way that we can get into that is through breathing into pain. Unless you learn that pain is a part of my life. The recession of the wave is a part of the ocean. When we are calling this pain, this good, this bad, this what I want, this not what I want, we're not in mystery. And all of those things are actually all mystery. So it's like the mind separates all the ingredients and the mystery brings them all together. There's this energy of alignment which comes along. There's no energy of competition anymore. Right. Sort of like an inner expansion that takes over. I love that you said that word because earlier when you were talking about educating the mind and I was thinking, well, what does it mean to educate the heart? The education of the mind is the expansion of the mind. And so anything that expands the heart and the heart energy, you could call that an education. The moment we begin to see beauty in everything, we tell the mind to stay away from judgment. Yeah. Seeing beauty even in the ugliness, seeing beauty in people's faces, we can really find beauty in everything. I was smelling the odor of the ocean. Mm-hmm which was like a smell of fish or dead fish or all of that. And I caught myself recognizing that I am judging a scent of life. Well, from this perspective especially, it really feels like beauty is a door into mystery. So no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter how trapped it feels or how unfair or whatever, how painful, the moment that you're able to see it as beauty, instantly, you know, the mind world of that unlocks and you're led into this, this majesty of the, of the mystery of the spiritual infinite. You look at art, which chiefly seems to be concerned with the exploration of beauty, especially beauty in places that we don't already see it or the unexpected places. And, you know, you, you see that, you see how it's so beautiful and you can't even really explain why it's beautiful. You could say some small things maybe, but you're not going to encapsulate beauty because beauty is not possible to be really contained. How could you ever convey how the most stunning symphony sounds, like why it's beautiful or, or why two colors next to each other are so beautiful? It really defies description. So beauty seems to be the lifeblood of the heart all through the universe, the mix of the physical and the spiritual. Yeah, one of my training as a Sufi, as a child, I had to find on a daily basis 
10 beautiful things. Love that. As I woke up in the morning, I knew that my intention was to look for beauty. Love that. And I would spend the whole day looking for beauty and write mm. it down. That was key factor mm -hmm. to my loving mm -hmm. forever mm -hmm. to say, I love. Mm -hmm. Because as you see these beauties, as you look for beauties, you find, wow, I didn't even think this was beautiful. Yeah, it's everywhere. Because you begin to see that more and more and more and more. Well, and especially because, as they say, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is just to say that we <laughs> are the source of beauty. You know, it's our interaction with what we see that opens that gateway. The gateway probably is the heart specifically that leads us into that mystery. I love what you just said about beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is so meaningful in the creative process. Mm -hmm. Do you know how? It has to do with relationship. It has to do with your relationship to what you're interacting with. And you could be standing right in front of something, and if you're using your mind, you could say, oh, that's not good enough, or that's dumb, or that's silly, or whatever. But to look at it and to not know what it is, to be caught away in the mystery of it, that's your choice. That's up to you. And that's why, you know, you get kids who can be walking with you on a beach, and you're thinking about the bills and what you need to do tomorrow, and they go, oh, my God, or their version of that, you know. Mommy, mommy, look at this. And you're like, what? And they just pick up this tiny little brown shell that's just like all other brown shells you've ever seen. But they see something majestical and powerful and beautiful about it. So it, it has to do with relationship, your relationship, which is you, not the brown shell. Unless we fall in love with beauty, you cannot fall in love with life. Mm. We live like a machine, but falling in love with life is falling in love with beauty. That's really interesting because beauty does have to s seem to play an integral role in falling in love, you know, in all the different ways you can fall in love with all the different things. Some people are like, oh, I love dolphins. I've become a marine biologist because I love dolphins. It's because dolphins are beautiful to them. That's why they do it. No one's going to dedicate their life to dolphins if they think they're ugly and stinky, you know? Or same thing with a person. It's like beauty always plays an integral role in what we call falling in love. And of course, falling in love is directly associated with the heart. And so this whole idea of beauty really does play a super strong role in this merger between the, the heart and the mind. Yeah, and the best way to fall out of love is to see ugliness in your beloved. <laughs> totally. That's the easiest way. All you have to do is just begin to see ugliness in the beloved, and in a very short time, you love is going to go gone. out the window. It's also stunning to think about the news and how the news is basically uh, anti-Sufi practice <laughs> because <laughs> you've got, here's 10 ugly things that happened today, and every day people watch that stuff, and every day... They're practicing being anti-Sufis. It's so unfortunate. We are spending so much time obsessing with all of the ugly things or speaking about normal things in ways that are ugly because those similar things, you know, could almost always be talked about in a more beautiful way, but they just rarely are. It would be nice practice as we go through life. One day, do it like a assignment for the day. Ask our heart and take a note of how many things 
you observe or happens to you that causes you to judge. Begin to look at those things. Those are the things that brings the beauty in comparison with ugliness. So it becomes a decision between the two, a judgment between the two. Just begin to experience how many things I see as I'm walking through that makes me judge. Those who make me judge are the enemies of that connection. Yeah. As we begin to really practice these during the day, as we live our life, we learn that, and then we can impose it upon our means of creativity or whatever we're doing in life, which makes life lovable. You know, you're talking about the role of beauty, but that also indicates that ugliness has a converse role. And you go back to some of these generational wars, and it's because they see ugliness in the other. They see ugliness in their ideas or in their culture or whatever. That's why they're trying to destroy it. They see ugliness and how as we as humans get more and more clear on the fact that both ugliness and beauty are generated from us, that each of us is the generator of both of those things, then our relationship with the external world massively shifts and changes. The other night I was watching a movie and there was this monster that they had created and I was just loving it. And my wife says, you are loving this monster? And I said, I'm loving the way they have made this monster. Wow. The way they have created that monster. I'm not looking at the monster. Yeah. I'm looking at the way this monster was created. Yeah. See, then there's a connection with the heart. You feel that. Exactly. You feel that. And going back to like the mind separating and the heart joining. It's like when we feel ugliness, we repel. We repel from ugliness. Whereas when we feel beauty we are attracted, we go closer. If you saw somebody and for whatever reason you thought that they were ugly, if you went closer and closer and closer to them, so close that you could only see their iris, they would not be ugly to you anymore. If you could go in to watch their neurons firing on the microscopic level of their brain, they would not be ugly to you anymore. Oh, yeah. It's just so clear, I guess what I'm saying, is that ugliness or beauty has to do with perspective, and perspective has to do with an internal position that we're in. But what truly makes an artist is sharing the beauty that you see, you observe yes. with others yeah. in a language which others can feel the same sensation as you felt. Yeah. So it's not about seeing beauty like everybody else sees. It's not a sort of a, this is fashionable, this is not fashionable. No, not that kind. This is the way I see beauty and this is the way, as an artist, I want to share that beauty with others. That's what made Picasso Picasso. It's sharing that beauty that he was seeing, which was outside the beauty of the academy and all the things that classical art was talking about. That imposition in a beautiful way, acceptable way of beauty, the way you see it, rather than adjusting the beauty to what your mind tells you it's beautiful so to educate the heart seems to me to spend time in small ways every single day just feeling and exploring and looking for the beautiful and allowing yourself to soak it in and expand 
The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh Durox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Nicholas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community. 